You know, when you have a, a series come up, you're thinking, oh, I don't know quite know what I know about the seven deadly sins. I've only done the first one, and I reckon that I'm quite an expert on that one. Not in a good way. I've discovered that I am a proud man and uh, that I, I do need help in this area. But I imagine as we go through it that we'll discover that we all have areas that we, we, we need to work on in our life. So, the seven deadly sins. Where do they come from and what are they about? So, the seven deadly sins come from um, a guy called Pope Gregory the Great. Never had a problem with, with pride of Pope Gregory the Great. I don't think he called himself that. I think someone else called him that. At least I hope so. Otherwise, we well. Um. But he, what he did is, is he, he sat down and, and read through all the Bible and started to put things into categories. Every time there was a sin, he would put it in a category. And eventually, he ended up with seven categories. And he called these the seven deadly sins. Now, before we go any further, I want to tell you something that's really important for you guys to hear. There is no such thing to a Christian than a deadly sin. It, it doesn't work that way. You know I mean, because there's, there's bits in the Bible that say things like this. For I'm convinced that neither in death nor in life, neither angels nor demons, at neither the present or the future, near any powers, near the heights nor depth, for anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or this one. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Sin can be a relationship killer, but it won't be the end of us because Christ died for the things that we did wrong. So as we look at this series, don't sit and go, whoa, is me. Think, how, by hearing, by learning, can I make my life a little bit better, a little bit more like God? Because we all fall short of God's glory, but he loves us. And he wants to restore us and make us right. So this isn't an exercise to make you feel guilty. Okay? Are we all chilled? You're not all doomed to die. Okay? I don't want you to go home going, oh, I've committed a deadly sin. I'm in big trouble. We all fall short. I, I like that thing, that sort of illustration of um, it can be a, a killer in a relationship. I don't know about you. But when I married my wife, when we were young, we, we met as teenagers and uh, got married in our early 20s. You know what I mean? There was things in our relationship, you know what I mean? We didn't share with each other when we were younger. Now that we are comfortable with each other and years have gone by, you know what I mean? Things are different. You know what I mean? It's okay to bite my toenails in bed. <laughs> I would have did that at the start. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's been a long time. <laughs> but there is things in our life that, we, you know what I mean, that, 
you, I mean, that can destroy a relationship with God. But, so the question for me was, when I first started looking at the start of the week, I said, well, what is pride? Well, pride is that mental and moral condition that precedes nearly all other sins. It is a, a revolting concept that swaggers in the presence of people and struts in the presence of the God Almighty. It is a self-righteous, self-sufficiency that blinds us of our greatest condition and our, our true need. God hates sin, but he hates pride more than them all. The Lord detests all the proud of heart. So I thought we'd look at a story of pride. Actually, I start the week, I came up with two stories, and I thought, well, I'm not sure if we've got time, so give me a nod, Liz, when I need to shut up, but let's see how far we go. If you've got a Bible, we're going to look in Chronicles, two Chronicles, chapter 25. Okay, if you've not got an electric one uh, device, it's uh, somewhere before the Psalms, if that helps. We all found it? It's on page 405 in my Bible. Oh, chapter 25. 2 Chronicles, chapter 25. I'm going to look at a king. Are we there? You all go quiet? Okay, we're looking at a king called Amaziah. Let's... uh, Read a little bit together. Amaziah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 29 years. His mother's name was Jehodadan, and she was from Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not wholeheartedly. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? He did what was right in the eyes of God, but not wholeheartedly. Heartedly. Now, rather than read through the chapter, because it's a massive chapter, I thought I'd tell you the story. Are we cool with that? If you, if you don't believe me, you can go and check the Bible. If you get bored, just read the story. In about it. It's a brilliant story. But it, it explains the story of pride. So, there's an army coming to get him. Okay, to get this little nation. So he is the king of the kingdom at the bottom. So he's a kingdom. He's a king of Judah. Now Judah is made up of two tribes. How many? Two, and they're made up of uh, Benjamin and of Judah. So it's, it's not a big nation. It's a small nation. Well, what the king does he, is he gathers all the people that he could find to see how big his army is, because the Edomites are coming, and he needs to know how many can we gather. And it says that he does pretty well. He comes up with 300,000 men, fighting men. Now, that's a pretty good army. I mean, Scotland didn't have as many as that when we beat the the English. You know, we had a far smaller army, but 300,000 is quite big. But it wasn't big enough. So what he does is he goes to Israel, the kingdom above, and says, could we hire some men? And uh, they lent him 100,000 men for quite a lot of money. But it makes his army far, far better. Well, the king's feeling quite smug. 
when a prophet of God comes to him and says, no, you can't do this. You see, the kingdom to the north, you know what I mean, the, the Israel, they don't worship God like you guys do. They're worshiping a false God. And if you bring that bit of army into your army, God won't be with you. And so the king says, well, what, what should I do? We've paid all this money. And the prophet says, send them back. And so he does. He sends them back. And with 300,000 men, he goes out to face the Edomites, this vast army. And they have a great victory. Could you imagine that? A great victory. God is with them. And they're able to protect themselves. God turns up and helps. It says they had such a great victory that they took a lot of their treasure back. They became wealthy. And some of the treasure that they took back was the gods of the Edomites. And what he did is he took them into Jerusalem and he started to worship them. Pride comes before a fall. Have we heard that before? We've all heard that. Pride comes before a fall. This guy, rather than getting back and saying, we've had such a great victory that God was with us, we should all now go to the temple and we all should be whooping and praising God. He does the complete opposite. He takes the false gods and starts to worship it. Pride comes before a fall. This is where the verse comes from, Proverbs 16. It says, pride goes before destruction and a haunty spirit before a fall. And this king is dumb. Don't you think? If you wanted to worship the, first, the false gods, they didn't do any good for the Edomites, did they? They lost. Why would you say, let's worship them? In fact, God was so convinced, he sent the prophet again to go and have a word. And this is what the prophet said. Why do you consult the people's gods, which could not save their own people from your hands? It's like, why be so dumb? They don't work. But he doesn't listen. Because pride becomes before a fall. The prophet stood and told him, if you do this, if you continue to do this, God will destroy you. But he says, look, be quiet. In fact, the Bible's a bit strong. He says, shut up. Who are you to speak to God, uh, to speak to the king? In a voice like this, shut up. Pride does the unthinkable. Why would you set up gods rather than worship the true God? This is what David, remember David committed that that sin where he he had an affair with uh, Bathsheba and then had her husband killed and then the prophet accuses him. And this is David's response. Hide your face from 
from my sins. Blow out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, a renewed and steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. He does the unthinkable, sets up these gods. He not only does the unthinkable then, but also, oops, also he does something else. He doesn't, pride prevents brokenness. When the prophet stood up, he should have went, oh, you're right, what am I doing? I am an idiot. I'm really sorry. He doesn't do it. It prevents brokenness. It's like, I'm doing what's right. Shut up, you. I know what I'm doing. It sort of stops him getting it right. And then he does the unthinkable. You know what the most unthinkable thing you could do is if you've had a victory like that, is to think that you're better than anyone else. And, And so that's what he does. He starts a fight with Israel. And he says to them, he says, basically he says, uh, why don't we, I think, if I got it on here, I said, why don't we meet, no, that's wrong, but he said, why don't we meet face to face? Let's get together face to face and have a chat. I mean, basically what you're saying, why don't we meet face to face? In Scotland, I've got Rosalind in here. In Scotland, we would say, if you see someone and you want to start a fight, what you say is square goal. That means if you take a swing at me, I'm going to take a swing at you, square go. And that's what he's basically doing. He's turning up this guy and go, come on in. You think you're hard? Square go. Let's, let's us fight. Israel was mad. They've got 10 tribes. They've got two. And he's like, yeah, yeah, we beat the Edomites. We can beat you guys too. Come on, square go. And uh, the king of Israel almost squashes him. He says, hmm, I don't think so. Anyway, he does come down, and it says he comes down, he breaks the wall in Jerusalem. He takes away all the treasure from the temple and from the palace, takes hostages of the people. And the king is utterly destroyed. They take him off. And this king who was proud is destroyed. The next story in the Bible, chapter 26 of, is of his son, Uzziah. And he does exactly the same. Uzziah became king at 16 when this king was taken away. Brilliant king. First of all, it says that he, he secures his country by um, being able to have an army that's able to attack all the enemies around him. And when he does, he builds defenses and keeps the people safe. It says not only was he good at being a soldier... He was good at being an engineer. They built walls. They made these machines that uh, could fire um, uh, massive arrows and, and, and boulders, could fall four boulders, a bit like what the Romans came up with. Brilliant engineer. And then he became a farmer. He was able to grow food to feed his people. The people loved him. But then he decided one day, late on in his life, that he wanted to be a priest. 
And you can only be a priest if you come from the tribe of Levi. And so 80 priests turn up and go, you can't be a priest. The priest job is only for the priests. You can't, you're the king. Do the king stuff. Let us do the priest stuff. And he's like having none of it because he's full of pride. God was with me in the past. I'm going to, and he says, he goes into the temple and he, he lights some incense and he's about to give the offering. And these priests, they're risking their life to confront him. If you do this, you're going you're to be punished. And he won't listen to them. And as he makes the offering, it says across his forehead, he breaks out in leprosy. And for the rest of his life, he has to live outside the city. Pride. It gets us all, doesn't it? When we think that we're better than other people, when we think we're good. Did it? Yesterday was a brilliant example. Any Wolves fans in? Just me. Okay. <laughs> Wolves are playing Man City, the best football team in the world ever. Fantastic. I saw the Man City shirt with him. I'm glad he's gone. <laughs> Best team in the world that has ever been. And they said last week, we're playing Wolves. It's like a week off because Wolves are so poor and we're so good that it's like just an easy week for us. It's a walk in the park. Well, turns up that, that Wolves started to play football yesterday and they beat the mighty Man City 2-1. Not only did we beat them, we were much better than them. It was a great match. Pride comes before a fall. But how often have we said stuff similar? How often do we look at people and and judge them? How often do we look down our nose at people? How often do we falsely put ourselves above people because of their background or the way they speak or how much education they got or the lack of finance or or the struggles that they come from or the way they dress? Three things to help us beat pride. First thing is, watch your temperature. Watch your temperature. What do I mean by that? Is sometimes our relationship with God can go cold. Don't you find that? That when, oh, when I first became a Christian, oh, wow, I was so enthusiastic. First time I became, first time, the only time I became a Christian, when I first became a Christian, I went to school. I hadn't been to school for such a long time. I went to, I went to, to our form group at the start of the day. I'd never been to that for years. Uh, the reason being, I used to deliver milk, so I'd never get to school on time. And when I turned up, my form teacher looked at me and went, and who are you? I went, oh, I'm Steve Thompson. She went, oh, I didn't even think you were here. I didn't think you were part of our school. And she ticked me in. And all my mates were like, whoa, what are you doing here? And I told them that I'd find Christ. I invited them to church. I was so enthusiastic. Have I still got that enthusiasm? Do I still go out and tell my mates and my, 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 the people I live near, my, my family, do I still make that difference? Or has my heart grown cold? I used to love reading the Bible. When I first became a Christian, I had this this brown, I just remember it being brown. My mum bought me my first Bible, which was in, 
I think King James wrote it. It was so, I hadn't a clue what it said. And then we discovered that there was modern translation. She bought me this book. It was brown. And I used to read it on the back of the milk lorry as we, you know what I mean, in between the, the dairy and where we started to, to think it was about 12 mile hour. And I'd be sat out in all weathers, poor Marine, reading my Bible. Why? Because I couldn't get enough of it. And I'd discover, you mean, over the weeks it'd fall off the lorry, we'd have to stop the lorry and have to run off and get it. And pages used to disappear then. I discovered some people were smoking my Bible. Wasn't happy about that. <laughs> but, um, but I had this love of, of Scripture. I just wanted to read it and read it and read it. Has my heart become cold? Have I not got that same joy? What about you? Watch your temperature. We need to be enthusiastic about God. Turn off the spotlight. This is a good one. When I first learned or was trained to, to speak, um, I, I worked with a, a guy called uh, Derek Cook, an evangelist. And he was brilliant because he would say, wherever we go to speak, we clean up. And I never got it. I never understood why we clean in the hall. We get to a hall and it would be spotless. We'd have all the seats ready for, for people to come in and to speak. And he'd go, no, no, no. Let's get all the seats, pile them up, Steve, and let's wash the floor. And here this man would take off his suit jacket, his tie, and we would scrub this hall. Even if it was clean, we'd scrub it so it was the nicest thing. And we'd put the seats out. And every time we put a seat out, we'd pray for who was going to sit in that seat. And I used to say, why are we cleaning the hall? Surely that's a job of a cleaner. He went, no, it's a job of a servant. And if you want to speak, you've got to learn that you're going to be a servant. And it's always struck me. Turn off that spotlight. It's not about us. It's about what God does. It's not about how good you are. It's about how good he is. God only wants us to trust in him. I always see God as a picture of a, of a, a child hanging from a, from a tree. And God saying, it's okay. Let go. I've got you. I've got you. And pride is where you go. Now it's okay, I'll climb down myself. We need to learn to trust in God. My, one of my heroes says you should never meet your heroes. But when I was at college, I, we used to look at this guy called um, Josh McDowell, who was a, um, a, thank you, an apologist. Someone who defends a Christian thing. He was brilliant at it. And then one day, I went to a conference, and Josh McDowell was there. He's American, so he never used to come to this country. So I was so excited. Josh McDowell is at this conference. I get to, get to hear him. And as I walked into the hotel room, there in front of me was Josh McDowell. I went, oh. And I went up to, up to the reception and got my pack and my key and my little badge. And as I turned around, Josh McDowell said, Steve. So glad to meet you. And I was like, he knows my name. <laughs> and he said, let me carry your, your bags to your room. And as we walked along the corridors, he spoke to me and chatted to me, carried the bags all the way to my room. And he'd learned that lesson. The same as what Derek had learned. The switch off the light. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you've got to learn to be a servant. Turn off the spotlight. And that may mean that you focus helping other people to achieve things. That might be saying, look, I'm going to make this guy and help this guy to do something, to do something well. 
That's what it means to turn off the spotlight. Take the, the, the light off yourself and let it shine either in God or in other people. And the last thing is this. Open your eyes. Open your eyes. Look at your heart. Look at your circumstances. Are you proud? Because it's easy to slip in. It's easy to go down that route. Open your eyes because, as you say, what we read at the front, he is faithful and just to forgive us and put us right. Turn your eyes on yourself and say, am I living how I should be living? And if not, get it right with God. These kings were great men, great men of God at the start, but pride destroyed them. Let pride not rule in our hearts, in our lives. But let us come to the God, our Father. Let us trust in him. Let's try and follow him with all our heart. Let's pray. So, Father, I thank you that you're a God who loves us, but you're a God who wants us to trust you. Help us not to trust in our own self. Help us not to big ourselves up, but help us to learn that, 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 that you are the true God, that you deserve all the praise and the glory. Help us to focus on what other people do and encourage them. Take the pride from our life for us is in your name. Amen.